Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this platform discussion with Howard Barker. My name is Mark Brown. I'm theatre critic of the Scottish um, weekly newspaper, The Sunday Herald. I'm also Scottish critic of the Daily Telegraph. And very proud to be editor of the, the book, Howard Barker Interviews, 1980-2010, Conversations and Catastrophe. Um, and I'm especially proud to introduce you to the gentleman on my left, who obviously is Howard Barker. Howard, uh, as I'm sure many of you know, is revered internationally as one of the leading dramatists in English language drama over the 20th and into the 21st centuries. And many, many plays, including Victory, The Europeans, and of course, Scenes from Execution, which is currently being performed on this stage. Um, so I'm, I'm going to start with Scenes from Execution. I'll just ask you, Howard, if you can recall how you began um, in, in writing this play? I can remember the origins of, of um, the idea of it simply from having visited the palace in um, Venice where there is a, a substantial painting of the Battle of Lepanto which features in one corner the character in this play who's called Prodo who has an, uh, a crossbow bolt in his head and there's a figure in that that is an authentic, uh, authentically borrowed image from that picture. It's on the basis of that single human uh, individual suffering that extraordinary shock that, that uh, set me off thinking about it. I think also it happened at the same time as the, as the Falklands War, and therefore there was a, um, as it were, um, a topical issue that made the idea of representing war interesting at the time, I think. It's, it's interesting when your plays are performed in England often there will be an attempt by some commentators to implant the idea of a topical relevance. Um, and with this play, the obvious topical relevance would be the notion of a clash of cultures between Christianity and Islam. Is that something of which you were aware at the time or are aware now? Well, it's very hard to say what kind of operates in your unconscious, isn't it? I, as, as someone who's always been interested in European history, I, I suppose uh, the, the endless war between the West and Islam has you know, been part of my thinking, and it, it occurs uh, at a tangent like that, as it does in, in Judith and in the European. So it, it's there in a number of texts of that period. But really, I, I think the... It's the central thrust of that piece. And, of course, it's changed its meaning over the years. It's, a, it's quite an old play now. Um, was, was about, I think, the, the issue of the artist's self-assertion against public policy. Uh, and I think it is interesting, watching this production in particular, how, how um, plays, as it were, mature or alter their meanings. They're very unstable things. Um, writers like to think they know what they're doing. I never really know what I'm doing. I think ignorance is a great asset in, in a writer. Um, to watch how that characterization of, the, of Galactea, the protagonist of the piece, possibly very sympathetic to me 25 years ago, now becomes almost a, a rather a cruel study in obsession. And that's, that's the result of different minds coming to the, the directing process and the state of society at any given time. But it's interesting to watch that in your own lifetime, I think. You're a historian by training in some regards. You, you studied history at university. It interests me your 
approach to history as an artist. Very often when playwrights, dramatists deal with a subject you deal with, there's an expectation on the part of some members of the audience, some commentators, that, you, that what you're going to produce is some kind of accurate history play. It seems to me that you don't deal in that at all. No, I don't. I don't write history plays. Um, and I've never done research, and I've never been interested in research. And I'm not interested in facts, and I'm not interested in the truth. None of those things interest me. The reason I was drawn into the historic mode, let's call it a mode rather than, a, than an actual practice, was as a writer, I, I'm interested in the hypothesis. I'm not interested in the facts, as I say. So to make the hypothesis, to make it stick, requires a milieu, a, a dramatic milieu. Like other writers, I mean, of course, we know Shakespeare, but it's true of Brecht and Shaw. It's always helpful to set a piece in another age, in another period, because it removes that dictatorship of contemporaneity from everything. So the audience can't say, well, you know, the world's not like that, because it's, it's out of distance. As time's gone by, even that, that device has not really been satisfactory for me. I'm, I'm always trying to move it into another area where, mm, where its imaginative power is, to, is absolute and where you can't dissent from its imaginative power. Uh, to some extent, I've done that through going to biblical subjects, other mythical subjects, Helen of Troy and the Bite of the Night and so on, taking narratives from the past like Thucydides, um, Peloponnesian Wars in, in a play like The Dying of Today, where you, you take that idea and replace it. But what, I, what I'm always seeking is, is a, mm, an imaginative atmosphere which um, is self-contained. And I've realized, I suppose, that it's a matter to do not with place, but style. And style is what enables you to avoid those problems. And in recent work, and I'm thinking of something like Block Echo, which we did in Northcote with the Wrestling School a year or two ago, um, and with some pieces I've written more recently that have not seen the light of day yet, Learning Kneeling or um, Dying in the Street. These plays, through the stylistic method, um, strip away any kind of encumbrances of associations. And that's partly to do with language, partly to do with the way you stage things the way characters are entitled to expound ideas without any justification at all. So it's, it's so talking about the historic thing, it's, it's an ongoing process to avoid, to avoid that judgment that the audience makes over what you might think of as a contemporary text. And that troubles some people. I mean, I remember um, reading with a combination of irritation and bemusement, one of my colleagues in the London newspapers criticising your play The Castle on the basis that some historic reference was inaccurate. Anachronistic. Uh, that struck me as rather odd, given that the play ends. This is a play about um, a, a crusader returning from the Middle East to find that his land has gone into a steep decline. Um, and the, in some ways, a, a kind of cabal of bisexual and lesbian witches have... I played, played a role in this, and yet the play ends with the sound of, of a jet fighter, if I'm not much mistaken. Mm, um, I would have thought that would have been something of a, 
uh, of an indication that this play is not aiming at historical accuracy, and yet, <laughs> and yet, still, some people are troubled by it. it, it, it is this a yeah. source of irritation and amusement <laughs> for you also? Well, I suppose that's why I'm, I tend to be a bit disparaging about the idea of the truth. I, you know, I, I've always said it that, that, that theatre is not in the street. Over the last possibly 50 years now, the idea that you bring the street into the theatre has been a crucial act of aesthetic. Um, of, of politics, basically, that the theatre should represent the world, that it has a, uh, a responsibility, that we as, as theatre performers, as actors, as writers, have responsibilities to certain credos, certainly political principles. I, I, I've never supported any of this. For me, this dark room that we're in, and usually they're much smaller than this in my, in my experience, <laughs> is, is simply not the street, and that the walls are significant, and the door is significant, and that when you come into this space, all those obligations of moral duty fall away. We may deal in the, in the world of morals, we may challenge morals, but we don't repeat them. We're not in the job of massaging conventional wisdoms. So to, to, to uh, accuse a writer like me of being inaccurate about, it, about the facts, of course, is, is you know, wasted breath in, in my, my opinion. And to come back to, to this play, I mean, we have a, a very strong female lead character. And I've made the observation in the past that I can think of no other male dramatist of modern times with the possible exception of Federico García Lorca, who writes such strong, and continuously in your case, such strong female characters, particular lead characters. And that, that seems to me also to be a way in which you subvert historical expectations simply because a specific historical circumstance may not have allowed a woman to be in that, that position doesn't mean that in your play she should not have that position. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Care to expand on, 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 on what, what attracts you to writing such strong female characters? Well, speaking as a, as a man, I'm interested in women. Um, on, that, on that level. I'm interested in, in the sexual relationship of men and women because that's a very cogent and recurring theme in my work. I, but also, it's, it's also to do with something that I think you're suggesting, which is that almost willfully, I try to foreground those who are usually in, in the background. Um, and in, the, in a historical narratives, generally speaking, women do not play a, a foreground role. And so it's interesting for me to... Um, to shuffle around a group of active figures in order to put, put the woman in the foreground. Uh, I, I think of, for example, at the moment, writing a, a play about Velasquez's painting Las Meninas, which I, I think is a very, very great painting and extraordinarily modern for its 1650s when it was painted. And when I look at it, uh, the, the foregrounded figure is the Infanta Margarita and, and Velasquez, who paints himself, in, in, a, in a mirror in that image. Um, but immediately I, I tend to search out smaller detailed figures and I somehow intuited that a very dim figure of a nun placed in the, in the right-hand corner would enable me, would license my imagination more freely than perhaps dealing with the foreground figures. So it's, it's, a, it's a sort of, um, well, I never call it mischievous, but a, but a way of dealing with reality to shift the power around it, or to illuminate different parts. And, and, and another aspect of your approach to character 
Um, you know, I've heard you give the advice that dramatists should, or young dramatists in particular, should consider if they feel particular antipathy towards a character that they are formulating, that they should try and write in, in favour of that character. And likewise, if they feel a strong sympathy with a particular character, find it in themselves to write against um, mm. against that. Now, that's a, at one level a, a, a quite simple advice, but at another level it's, it's actually a complex advice, particularly in a theatre culture in which we are often expected to empathise with certain mm. characters and to dislike other characters, yep, yep. as if that's somehow part of the, an important mm. part of the theatre experience. I think that's an archaic relationship between the stage and the, and the audience. I don't try to write sympathetic characters. I never have. I've never tried to put myself on the stage. I've never said either, what's being said here is important for you to know. I don't think artists have anything to tell anybody except imaginatively, not morally. And the hypothesis is everything. And to write a play and to um, drive yourself into areas you do not really know or to deal with characters you superficially don't find sympathetic, to endorse the illegal, all these things should drive the text. For me, that's, that's my modus operandi. So therefore, I have a problem immediately, given, and this is my story of my life in the last 35 years, I don't produce the humanist text. So all the theatres and all the critics here, and this is England, and we can talk about England in a minute if you like, but England would expect these services to be performed. So what, what do you offer an audience if you can't offer them sympathetic characters, good advice, intuitive notions, insights, and all these cliches? My reliance on the actor is huge. What, I, what do I give the actor? I, I give the actor a text which is very highly wrought and ought to give them immense pleasure, normally does, in delivering it. Um, it also has a rhythm. It has a vocabulary and a rhythm which drives the actor onwards. The result of that, I hope, when it's working properly, and of course, as you know, I've had my own company for a long time, and these are the values we endorse, is to have, give the actor or the actress, usually, as you say, that's normally the protagonist, um, a hypnotic power on stage, so that whilst you, the audience, may not like what this person's saying, you are drawn into their world, and that, for me, is what the tragic experience is. We don't have tragic theatre here. It's a long time since we've had a tragic theatre, and I've worked very hard to try and establish one, or re re revive one in some of these plays. But to me, the tragic experience is one where you are not comfortable, not comfortable with the protagonist's arguments. But he or she draws you into some place you are very unwilling to go. For me, that's the experience of the theatre. Otherwise, let's watch television or, or go to the movies. You know, it, it has to be an ordeal. Yes, you, you've, you've said in the past that and I think we've discussed in the past that this strange situation we have, I think, in British theatre where, whether consciously or subconsciously, many people have accepted the idea that the advent of television and cinema somehow shrunk theatre, has shrunk the possibilities of theatre, and that somehow theatre has become a poor relation to TV drama and, and cinematic drama. But it seems to me that the art form to which theatre has always been closest is poetry. Mm, well, exactly. 
I mean, nothing has eclipsed tragedy as an art form. Why don't we do tragedy here? Oh, I don't know. There's a lot of historical reasons for these things. Tragedy is poetry. It is the, you know, not poetry in the form of, in which a poet would write it on the page, but the, the poetic discourse of the actor in a situation of extremity. And when I'm talking about extremity and human pain, I'm not talking about misery, by the way. Misery is a quality of social realism. Tragedy is something else. Um, these are extraordinary experiences which we've have inherited from, of course, obviously from antiquity. And we've released this great gift, we've let this gift go in order to replace it with social realism, plays about issues, problem theatre, therapy theatre, and so on. Aristotle might have led us to think that tragedy is also a therapy, but it's not. Aristotle is wrong on that account, I'm certain of it. Yes, uh, you've... you've <clears throat> Stolen the words it's enhancing. Of, uh, it's an enhancing stolen experience. Stolen the words out of my mouth because I was about to move on to Aristotle because it's, um, it's, it's important, I think, to talk in the development of your work about what, what you refer to as the theatre of catastrophe, which is very much the Barkerian form of tragedy. And what interests me about it is that it, that it does turn its back on Aristotle. It turns its back on the idea that we have enacted pain <coughs> on the stage in order to have a cathartic effect on an audience and a cathartic effect on a, on a society. You've said that you want theatre to, in the moral sense, to wound and for people to feel that wound mm. continuously, mm. not mm. for theatre to have some kind of functionality, medical function or whatever. Precisely. Yes, yes to all of that. Yeah, it, it's... <coughs> I call, I call it an ordeal. It's, it's, a, it's an ordeal. The idea that people don't like to experience pain in theatre is, is, is absurd. Uh, our, our experience as a company, and I've seen it with work not, not produced or directed by me or anything, is that people return to see the plays more often. The harder the plays are, the more unbearable they are to some extent, the more people tend to return because there's something they want to find in the text. And these texts, I don't talk about scenes from execution because, in a way, that's the op most open and humanist thing I've ever written. But generally, in the, in the tragedies, um, the complexity is huge. And the effect is not that we don't get this, because some people do say that. They say, I don't get this. By the interval, I can't stand it, I don't get it. And they want to leave. But uh, there's an awful lot here, some of which I get, some of which I don't. And I don't get it. When I write it, as I said earlier, I write from ignorance, I write blindly. The, the narrative writes itself because it's driven by the, by the language, by the character. I don't know what the outcome are, is at the beginning. So people will return to try and understand more, especially if, as a company on this stage, you are united in delivering this text. It's, it's a sort of ecstatic experience. I, I wrote a play called The Ecstatic Bible, last eight and a half hours, but um, <laughs> we're not doing that again for a while, but... Um, <laughs> You know, th that's the experience. It's an actor with uh, text in the mouth of this sort of complexity. And it's very worrying that drama schools are not delivering people who can do this so well anymore. That's another issue, but, you know. It's what we have in theatre, and you don't get it on television, you don't get it in the movies, fine, great art forms as they are. This is a classical experience, and, and we need to preserve it and work on it. In, in your book of... Your first book of theory... Um arguments for a theatre, you say something which I think should be emblazoned across every theatre and every conservatoire where actors are, are training, 
It is not to insult an audience to offer it ambiguity. And that that's, that's strikes me as very important because it's not that your theatre is devoid of morality, politics, the erotic. It's, a, it's full of these things, but what it's full of is possibilities. It's, it's not full of... It's, it's what are absent are messages and clear directions. And it seems to me that those ambiguities and those possibilities are, 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 are what lead to your, the theatre of catastrophe in particular being such a profound experience for audiences. The, the, the less clarity, the better in some ways. Yes, I don't, I don't, mm, I don't avoid clarity. I'm not, I'm not mm, as I said, a typewriter. I do work on a typewriter, funnily enough. Um, I don't sit there trying to avoid clarity. It's that it's not something that I feel an obligation to deliver. Now, of course, in rehearsal, actors are trained always to think of the moment they're playing, the scene they're playing, their action they're playing. And for them, that becomes a difficulty if they're not used to playing the work. But in the end, they, they understand this, because it, it's the language is riding them. They're, they're being driven by the language. It's not, they're not talking it. It's, in a sense, talking them. And when they put their faith in the language, and you can see it on this stage tonight, particularly in the performance of Tim McInerney and in um, William Chubb's piece, those two actors have given themselves to the discipline and the rhythm of that speech. And I'm going to give you something else I quite like written over a drama school portal, which is Nietzsche's so brilliant remark that if an actor doesn't understand the rhythm of a sentence, he doesn't understand the meaning of it. I mean, Nietzsche was not an actor, nor was he a stage director, but that's an incredible insight. As a director, and other directors would know that, you, can, you know when an actor doesn't understand quite what they're saying when the rhythm breaks up. It seems like it's the wrong way around, but actually it's the correct way around. And if you're auditioning actors, and you hear they can't do the rhythm, they're not going to be able to do this sort of work. It's, and that is, in a way, innate. So what I'm talking about is the irrational things driving the play. Not, we'll sit around a table for five days looking at the script, trying to work out what he says. What is he saying? This question always hangs over the dramatic experience. What is he saying? What is she saying, the writer? I don't know what I'm saying. We're seeing something happen before your very eyes in that interaction. I'm sure you're as pleased as I am that scenes from execution is being staged here at the <clears throat> National, but... The fact remains that this is the first time your work has been produced by Britain's National Theatre, which for many people, myself included, is rather extraordinary. I mean, I'm just back from a recent trip to Slovenia, for example, and as you know, the, Slovenia, the National Theatre of Slovenia has produced your work some time ago. Likewise, when I travel to theatre festivals all over the world, people will talk to me about Barker productions that they have had in their country. Um, and in Scotland, where I come from, there is a similar attitude towards your work. Um, the, the, the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland is about to stage its 13th and 14th Barker productions. So how do you account for, for this, this, this lapse and, 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 and for this uh, yeah. conversion, if, if conversion it is, in this production being staged here now? It's a PhD for somebody. <laughs> Yeah, I used to, 35 years uh, it took to get this play on here. 
Well, it's, it's uh, yeah, people, a lot of people abroad, as you mentioned, are, are very indignant on my behalf about this strange situation, but I, I have to be um, careful not to, to, to indulge in paranoia. This is not a personal issue. I'm, I'm quite sure that neither Peter Hall, Richard Eyre, Trevor Nunn, that he animus to me personally. We must have a look at this in a cultural way. This is England. Scotland is not England. Scotland is a European country. England doesn't want to be a European country. It is one, but it's hesitant about it. What, what are the governing characteristics of English culture, I ask myself, since the Reformation, since the death of Shakespeare and his colleagues, say 1620 as a breakpoint? No tragedy after that, really, serious tragedy. You get the Reformation, you get civil war, the rise of the Puritan ethic, you get utilitarianism in the 19th century, you get the Labour Party, you get the welfare state. It's not a culture that encourages hypothesis, speculation. It's not a speculative, intellectually it's not speculative. It's about the observed reality. It's about the empirical. Wittgenstein leaves Vienna in 1908 to go where? Cambridge. Cambridge is the home of empirical philosophy. The whole country is imbued with it. So it's hardly surprising if nearly all the theatre critics and nearly all the artistic directors seeing a play by me can't understand where you get on or where you get off it because it's not empirical text. It's not based on what I've seen and what we know. It's not about the stock market. It's not about labour relations. It's not about politics at all at least superficially. Scenes from execution is the one that I think fits possibly the criteria of a national theatre here in England I'm talking about. We shall see whether others appear. I've got my doubts. Yeah, I could <coughs> talk with you for many more hours, Howard, and I'm sure people here could, could listen to you for many more hours also, but there's a play to be staged. Um, so I'm going to put a, wrap this up now and with a reminder that Howard will be signing books uh, in the, the foyer upstairs uh, for, for those of you who want to, to, to purchase, uh, have signed some of his work. And those of you who are going to see the, the, the play tonight, I hope you enjoy it very much. And it just remains to thank everyone here for, for coming, for those of you who asked their questions, and in particular to, how, to thank Howard Barker.